Will you pray with me? So Heavenly Father, as we turn now to your word, make us mindful of the things that we choose to see and do and say and the way that we treat one another so that we can bring honor to your name. In Christ we pray, amen. This morning our passage of scripture is found in Luke chapter 10. Last week we looked at the second half of Luke 10 and talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan. We discussed what it means to be good neighbors and today we're gonna look at the first part of Luke 10 and discuss what it means to be good messengers. So in Luke 10, beginning with verse one, we read this relatively strange passage of scripture. It says this, after this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazim. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to me... Listens, uh, he who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Two or three years ago, I was traveling with some colleagues out of the country. We were at Oxford for a conference, and we'd spent the day 
in meetings and seeing all of the fabulous colleges in that city. We'd had a full and busy day. And we'd spent a lot of time texting back and forth, coordinating travel plans and so forth. And at the end of the day, when I was back in my room, getting ready to go to bed, I got a text message on my phone from our university president. Now, he texts me usually if there's a problem. And so I quickly opened up the text message and looked to see what it said. And I read these words, we are in for the night, I love you. Well, I was surprised by this for two reasons. Uh, one, it's not normal for him to check in with me when he gets in at night. And two, he doesn't usually say I love you. It, not often by text message anyway. So I looked at this text message. I wasn't exactly sure how to respond. And so I just typed in, I love you too. <laughs> now, how many of you have ever accidentally sent a text message to someone you did not intend to send it to? Yes. And I can tell you some stories of having sent a text message to my son that was intended for my wife, my wife having sent a text message to my mother instead of sending it to me, and it was about her. <laughs> and. This illustrates something that is true about the times we live in, right? We have more ways than ever to communicate with each other. And as a result, it is all the more important that we become wise in what we say, to whom we say it, how we say it, and when we say it. Being good messengers requires remarkable wisdom. And for this reason, Jesus gives us, I think, some incredibly practical instructions for how to be good messengers. Let me begin by saying that this passage, this somewhat strange passage that I hope to explain as we walk through the message this morning, there are two principles I want to begin with. And the first principle we find in verse 1 where Jesus sends out the 72. Some of your translations may actually say 70. Some ancient manuscripts use 70, some 72. Because numbers in the Bible are almost always of symbolic importance. Seven is the number of completion. 72 is a multiple of 12, the 12 tribes of Israel. The totality of the people of God, that's the idea that Luke is conveying to us, which tells us this, that all followers of Christ are messengers. Every follower of Christ is a messenger. All of us are called to be messengers. We have developed, especially in prosperous places where we can afford to pay ministers to be full-time staff people at a church, we've developed a kind of professional clergy. The group of people that we pay to do the work of the church, to pay to minister to people, to be messengers, to proclaim the good news, and so forth. And the rest of us, we support them by showing up on Sunday, by sitting in the pew, by giving money, uh, by praying for them. But that's not the model that Jesus is conveying here to his own followers. No, he is sending them out to be messengers in the same way that he 
will be a messenger. We are all called in to be sent out. We are all blessed in order to be a blessing. And then the second principle we find in this passage is that every follower's message is identical to Christ's message. It's not that Jesus called together followers and then gave them the low-level work, the kind of preparatory work. It's not that he was sending them as kind of the advance team to get things ready for when he was going to go. No, he sends them to do the exact same things he's going to do, to preach the same message that he's going to preach, to heal the sick as he will, to confront spiritual forces of oppression as he will. They are sent out to do the exact same things that he will do himself, which illustrates to us there are no super extra special Christ followers who are really, really good, the Mother Teresas, the Billy Grahams, the famous people who accomplish a lot, and then the sort of average people like us. No, Jesus sends these very average people out to do extraordinary things, and they do, and they are so successful that they surprise even themselves by what they accomplish. Now, along the way, he gives them some practical instructions. There are 11 in this passage and actually a 12th that may be the most important. So I've broken them up into three categories and the first is this. He teaches them to stay together. To be good messengers, they need to stay together. Look in verse one, it tells us that he sent them out two by two. Now there's good There's a good reason for this, because he did not want them to be alone. He did not want them to work in isolation from each other. But by sending them out in twos, it means that if any one were to become frustrated and leave, to become tired and want to go home, to feel the pain of rejection and want to quit, he or she would leave the other alone. And... So he sent them out in twos, so that they would need to trust each other, so that they would be accountable to one another. He tells them, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. In other words, as he's sending laborers, he tells the laborers to pray that God would continue to send laborers, which means we're always looking to duplicate our efforts. We're always looking for partners to join us in this work of the kingdom. He tells them, don't take a purse or a bag or sandals. It it sounds like Jesus is sending him on a trip and telling them, don't bring any luggage. But that's what he's telling them. Well, there's a reason for this, I think. If you've ever traveled and lost your bags, you know what a miserable feeling that is. You get off the plane, you go to luggage claim, and you watch the baggage as it comes on the conveyor belt, kind of goes around in the semicircle. And you look at some of the bags that look like yours, and you think, oh, that's mine, no, oh, that's mine, no. And the longer you wait, the more the idea appears in the back of your mind, you know what, Uh, I hope my bags didn't get lost. And sure enough, most of the bags are claimed, and then that conveyor belt stops, and there you are, no bags. And then you get to go to talk to that person whose all-day miserable job it is to talk to people who've lost their luggage, where every single customer with whom you interact is a disgruntled customer. And you have to work out some way to get the clothes and the toiletries and the things you need. And it's a miserable feeling. You feel helpless. You feel completely dependent. And Jesus sends them out 
purposefully to feel this kind of dependence so that they would trust not only in him, but so that they would learn to depend on the mercy of other people, the hospitality of others. He sends them out so that they would, by necessity, need the mercy of the people to whom they were going to visit. Then he tells them to enter a house. They're not just going door to door and having brief conversations at the door. No, they are invited into homes. They take up residence with people in these towns. They get involved in their lives. They get to know them on an intimate level. This is not a superficial contact. This is not uh, a brief, casual conversation. He's calling them to deeper levels of connection and community. He tells them to stay. Don't move around. In other words, accept the hospitality you're given. Accept the accommodations that you receive. Don't try to better your situation by moving from place to place. Get better food by moving around. Bloom where you're planted. Do ministry where God places you. Be content with where you are. And in all of these ways, he's calling him into deeper levels of trust and dependence and community and cooperation with one another so that they don't work in isolation, so that they have to trust in him and so that they have to trust in each other. This is what good messengers do. And in a real sense, by treating each other hospitably and kindly and by trusting each other, being accountable to each other, the messengers convey a powerful message. The messengers become the message in how we treat each other. This is the purpose of families. This is the purpose of the family of God, to be about giving a kingdom message, not just in what we say, but in how we gather together in order to say it. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, he talks about the four Greek words for love that we find in ancient Greek literature and in the Bible. There's the word storge, which is affection. There's philia, which is brotherly love. There's eros, which is a self-gratifying love. And there's agape, which is a self-sacrificing kind of love. And Lewis argues that these loves work together in tandem to strengthen and solidify relationships. And in particular, when he speaks of philia love, he says something that I think is important about friendship. He says that the posture of friends is side by side. He says, the posture of lovers is face to face. Last night I went on a date with my wife to celebrate her birthday. We went to a restaurant, we sat across from each other, we looked into each other's eyes and lamented our age. <laughs> and we look at each other and we communicate that way, but when I'm hanging out with my son or with my other friends, usually it's not sitting across a table in intimate conversation, usually we're doing something together. We're performing some task together. What Lewis is communicating is that truest friend, friendship, the deepest levels of community, are formed when we are on a common mission together, when we share a common message, when we treat each other with this kind of dependent hospitality, and we, when we are united in a cause, then true friendship and community forms. So he tells his followers, stay together. Number two, he tells them to stay on message. Verse four, he says, don't greet anyone on the road. You know, 
I read this as a Southerner, I think, this is rude, right? When we pass people, total strangers, we always say, hey, how's it going? Have a good day. You know, we Southerners, we don't, we don't have to know you very long to tell you all about ourselves. We'll get into intimate conversations about, you know, family details with complete strangers waiting in line for something. This is kind of the way we are. We're very hospitable in this way. And were we to pass somebody on a sidewalk and turn the other way and not say hello, it would feel to us rude. It might be perceived by other Southerners as rude. But I'll tell you, not everybody in the world feels this way. My wife and I spent some time in New York right after Christmas, and I'll be honest, the first couple of days I was there, you know, I would slip into Southerner mode, and I'd pass somebody on the sidewalk and say hello, and they would look, like, look at me like I was crazy. You get in the subway, hey, how's it going? They give me a strange look, because not everybody behaves in this way. So Jesus isn't telling them to be rude to the people they encounter. He's telling them, don't get distracted. Don't be deterred by other conversations. Don't get off message by getting involved in other kinds of relationships and other endeavors. He's saying, keep your focus. In fact, he tells them not to be distracted by rejection. He tells them, you're going to be rejected. And when you are, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Shake the dust off your feet. Wipe it off in rejection of them. He gives them a way of thinking about rejection. It's not personal, it's not about you, it's about me. And then move on to the next place. Do not be distracted by other conversations. Don't be deterred by rejection. Stay on message. And the message is this, it's simple. The kingdom of God is near you. That's it. The kingdom of God is near you. I read this and I think, I spent a lot of years in school and seminary taking all sorts of classes. I didn't necessarily need all of those classes to be able to say the kingdom of God is near you. And if I could give you a simple definition of the kingdom of God, I'll offer this one. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus taught his own disciples to pray, he taught them to pray in this way. And I have it memorized in the King James. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And of the subjects Jesus taught about and preached about, the kingdom of God was his favorite. We look in the Gospels, we see that Jesus spoke of hell 12 times. He spoke of money 30 times. He spoke of eternal life 31 times. He spoke of heaven 90 times. But of the kingdom of God, he speaks more than 150 times. Far and away, the most common thing about which Jesus spoke. The rule and reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is near. That is a hopeful message. God is near to you. As Jesus sent his messengers out to speak into the chaos of the towns they would visit, into the political turmoil of the places they would visit, into the desperate lives of the people they would meet, into places of physical illness and spiritual oppression 
and grave poverty. He sent them with a message of hope. The kingdom of God is near you. Not a message of condemnation, not a message of God's wrath and God's anger, but a message of hope and compassion and healing, physical and spiritual. The kingdom of God is near you. This is a message, I think, to us as messengers that we not get distracted by the noise that clutters our world, especially in a tumultuous political environment where you turn on the TV, you turn on the radio, and there's one news story after another. And depending on what your perspective is, you may either be exultant about what's going on, thrilled by what you hear, or despondent about what you hear. You may be excited or you may be scared to death. And here's the reality, that as citizens of the kingdom of God, we have the least reason of anyone to either be excited or to be despondent about what's taking place in our world because we are not citizens of the kingdom and the kingdoms of this world, but we are citizens of another kingdom. We are messengers of another kingdom. So we close out the noise and we stay on message. The kingdom of God is near. Stay together, stay on message, stay humble. To me, one of the most surprising passages, uh, verses in this passage is verse 18. When Jesus' messengers return and they say, we've had remarkable success, even the demons submit, even the most hopeless situations are turned around. Even the most desperate people uh, find hope in the kingdom. Jesus responds by saying this, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Wow. That's not exactly a pat on the back, is it? That's not the most encouraging response to people who've worked hard and done well and followed the instructions he gave and had remarkable success. But look, Jesus is referring here to, in in a kind of abbreviated way, to something that his followers would likely, to a theological account that his followers would likely have been familiar with. And it's the idea that Satan, who was a messenger of God, who was in heaven with God, rebelled against God and was cast out along with his followers to uh, a place of utter despair and darkness and now wages spiritual war against God. That the enemy we face is not just an impersonal force but is personal and strategic and serious. And Jesus says to his followers, I saw Satan fall like lightning. In other words, I knew someone who was even more talented than you. I knew someone who was more intelligent than you. I knew someone who was closer to God than you. I knew someone who was more successful than you, who was a better messenger than you. And he fell. And if it can happen to him, it can happen to any one of us. I think that's the message that Jesus gives his followers. He says, when you experience tremendous success, you don't become conceited. You don't become self-absorbed. You don't think better of yourself when when you succeed 
As he told them not to think less of themselves when they faced rejection, he told them not to think more of themselves when they faced success. Because their identity and their joy was tied up not in what they did, but in who they were, who they were in Christ. When my son was playing baseball as a kid, he's now 20, almost 22, and when he was very, very young, he instantly took to baseball. Uh, he picked up a baseball before he could even walk, and that became a toy that he literally slept with for about the first six or seven years of his life. From the crib to the transition bed to the bed, he slept with a baseball and then later with a baseball in, and, and a glove. He loved baseball. He was really good at baseball in his younger days. He played t-ball and then coach pitch and then machine pitch. He was great all the way through. I remember the first time we ever played t-ball, I took a baseball and I set it on a tee and I had shown him how to swing a bat, although he sort of already knew. And I placed the ball on the tee and I started to back away and I told him just to swing whenever you're ready. And um, he swung the bat and he hit the ball so hard that I didn't even have time to reach down and grab the ball. He hit me right in the shin. And it felt like I'd been shot in the shin and I literally fell to the ground and I'm holding on to my shin, writhing in pain as my son begins rounding the bases. (laughs) All right, so this was his love for the sport and we bonded a lot over baseball and he was a good player. And I'll tell you, I know intellectually that the chances of, you know, my son becoming a professional baseball player are like one in a billion. Like I know this, we know this, right? But if you go out to most, major, uh, to most little league fields today and you listen to the dads and moms screaming, you would think they had forgotten that there's an incredibly small chance that your kid is gonna play professionally. But I have to tell you, the thought creeps into my mind, right? I think, oh, he, if he keeps this up, he might be able to play in high school. If he keeps this up, he might even be able to get a scholarship to play in college. You know, the cost of college these days, that might be good. And if he, you know, after that, who knows? Like, I'm entertaining these thoughts in my head, right? So I'm encouraging him after good games. He had lots of good games as a kid. We would get in the car, we'd talk about it. That was a great play at third base. You know, you made a great throw from, you know, the catcher from behind the plate, and it was a great hit in, into the gap there, way to, you know, way to take the pitch as it, you know, was, as it came to you. We'd have these conversations. And he quickly developed the sense that I was really proud of him when he played well. Around age 12 or 13, he hit his growth spurt, and he's now 6'2 and weighs about 160 pounds, so he's not built like a baseball player. And around age 12 or 13 is when kids start throwing curveballs. That usually separates the men from the boys when it comes to baseball. And like a lot of kids, like most kids, he couldn't hit a curveball. And so Around this time, we would get into the car on the way home from baseball games, and we would talk less and less about the game. And I I did that because I didn't want him to think I felt less of him because he wasn't doing as well. And he was thinking about quitting, although he didn't want to talk about it with me. But you see, to some degree, the damage was already done because I'd spent so many years praising him for having done well, that when he stopped doing well and I couldn't praise him anymore for his success, then he felt like I thought less of him. And I had to have some conversations with him to say, son, I'm proud of you 
when you play well. I'm proud of you when you don't. I'm proud of you for who you are. And even though I had felt that, I'd not always communicated that to him in the way that I should. I love my kids not because of the good things that they do. I love them because they are my children. This is what Jesus is saying to his own followers. Do not rejoice in what you do. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, your joy, your security, your identity is not tied up in your success, how well you do in school, how well you perform in business, how much you achieve in life. Your joy, your success is connected to this, that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, that you are loved by God so much that he sent Christ to die for you. He gives you his grace. He gives you compassion. He invites you into his kingdom. That is your joy. That is your security. That is your identity. And for that reason, you are able to be a messenger. You're able to stay together. You're able to stay on message. You're able to stay humble because God has given you a way to think about rejection and failure and a way to think about success. And it does not affect who you are. Your name is written in heaven. And that is the source of our joy. That is the message that we proclaim to the world. Let us pray. God, I thank you that you have given us a name that is written in heaven, that you have loved us so much that we cannot fathom a kind of love that we do not earn, a kind of grace that we cannot work to achieve. But that's what it means to be a citizen of your kingdom. So as people who believe and speak about the rule and reign of God on earth, help us to do so with courage and with conviction and with focus and compassion as a community of faith, as families of faith. Keep us humble, humbled by your grace, by your acceptance of us no matter what. In Christ's name we pray, amen.